The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. I hope you all are having a wonderful Monday and it's sunny where you are because we're in New Hampshire and there hasn't been sun here for weeks. So... Um, we have a great guest today. Um, her name is Joni Gamel, and she is a registered nurse, and she's also a board-registered interventionist. And Joni has been working as an interventionist for a few years, and she has written a book called The Interventionist, Behind the Scenes with Joni Gamel, a recovering addict who turned her life around to help others. Um, good afternoon, Joni. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Mary. Thank you for having me. It'll be easy to remember your name. My daughter's name is Mary. Oh, and my mom's yeah. name is Mary. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I know I'm at an age <laughs> where I need to put uh, cues to, to names because uh, they just don't stick anymore. Um, you know, you have a, um, in reading and in talking to you, um, you've had an incredible journey um, beginning as a registered nurse in 1978 and then in 2005 ending up. Um, being the subject of one of Dr. Phil's primetime shows. Um, Can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey and how you ended up with Dr. Phil? Uh, Sure, yeah. It was kind of, it it really fell out of the sky. I wasn't um, a viewer of Dr. Phil, not a big fan, but I was very impaired on three prescription drugs, Adderall, buprenorphine, and Clonopin. And my son, who was very young, he was about two, was starting to have behavior issues. And I wanted to ask Dr. Phil about my son because I had read in the jacket of his family first book that most young children that are acting out, many times there's a parent behind them with a problem. And I wanted to ask Dr. Phil if he thought my extreme prescription drug dependence was affecting my son. Well, of course, and I also sort of the twist here is I was an RN working in an alcohol and drug rehab and had spent many years in adult children of alcoholics. Uh, in my own recovery because both my parents were alcoholics. So I knew the answer, but I think I was pretty desperate that night. It was late at night, and when I got to the Internet to ask one question about my son, they had a big flashing thing on the Internet said, looking for middle-class moms addicted to prescription medicine, Joni. It was like my bio. And I said, I really don't want to do your show. I just want an answer to my question about my son. And... um I asked about him, but then I went on to tell him how I was addicted to three drugs and that I had lost both my parents. And the next day they called and said, we would like to help save your life, and that's how it began. Um, how did you get the medication? Were you prescribed for illness? or? Yeah, um, I had had problems with alcoholism in my 20s, and I had given up alcohol with the help of a psychiatrist. I sort of preferred that to going into recovery. It sort of went down easier at that point. Um, So I'd been off alcohol for many years, and then I injured my back working as a registered nurse transporting a patient. 
And now I'm in my 30s, and I ended up with a spinal fusion and 12-piece titanium, and I ended up on a lot of pain medicine before the spinal fusion and afterwards. And I just went up like a house of fire. Even after the, a very good surgery and I really didn't need the medicine anymore, I was very addicted to it. So that's how it started with chronic pain. Which certainly is um, something that anyone in recovery has to be very vigilant about in terms of chronic pain and becoming cross-addicted. Yes, it is. It's an important issue, and I've actually had the opportunity to speak about chronic pain and addiction and the way I deal with it now. I mean, I don't go around in chronic pain, but I still do have some lingering back and hip pain. And I take an old tricyclic that Johns Hopkins Pain Clinic in Baltimore put me on, Cinequan. It's very similar to Elevil. So, and I was wonderful last night. I was watching TV with my husband, and I noticed that they were advertising an antidepressant for pain. And I'd like to see that more mainstream, that there are other ways to deal with pain other than narcotics. And that's very important for addicts and alcoholics because, I mean, personally for myself, I can't just take one. Could you outline for our audience, generally speaking, um, how an antidepressant helps manage pain? Well, you know, I spoke with some doctors through Father Martin's Ashley, and I had the doctors explain it because I don't have a really strong working knowledge of it. But it, they, from what I gather, it's the neuropathways in the brain. And what it does is it blocks those neuropathways that produce pain down the spinal cord. And that's how, that, and it also increases general mood. And you just know when you feel better, you're usually in less pain. Um, but I, again, I don't have that, the working knowledge that a physician would have about it. And certainly if you feel better, then you're more apt to, to move around more, which makes you more flexible yeah. and less apt to be, um, be, have your muscles so tight that any, any movement causes pain. Right. And I, I go to the gym almost every day and I bike. And so I, I've come a long way. And I think it's also really important for addicts and alcoholics to get those endorphins from exercise. Uh, to help us naturally feel better because after a long period of addiction, either with street drugs, prescription drugs, or alcohol, we have really burned out all of our natural endorphins. We've put them in synthetically, and so our brain stops producing them, and that's the depression that you see in early recovery. And one way that you can get that back is through exercise and increasing those endorphins. I know. Exercise is a very easy intervention that really um, we don't capitalize on enough, you know. Yeah. It's I mean, so simple. Yeah, it is. It's so simple, and there's also community in it. I, I go to the gym, and I see the same people every day, and I think we take for granted these small little pockets of community. It certainly isn't a recovery meeting, but I see the same moms. I'm a mom. My kids are in school and you see the same community of people, and I think that has a lot to do with good, solid mental health as well. I agree. Um, what was it like to work with Dr. Phil? I, I have an impression of him that's probably much I know. I get him. asked that a lot. You know, I think he's tough. I think he can be tough to work with. He works in a very intense environment. I've been to the studio a lot because since my original intervention, I've had the opportunity to take 11 other addicts and alcoholics back to the Dr. Phil show. Basically, I film them, get the film to L.A., and then tag them on to my story 
and it's been very, I've been very, and I'll answer your question in a second, but I've been very passionate about being able to give back what was given to me, which was essentially unending treatment for my story. So you get wonderful treatment, unending treatment for your story, and you also get to show the public how difficult this disease is. But getting back to Dr. Phil, he's great with me. He's very nice. He's been supportive. Um, we just had a show where he promoted my book. He always gives me a big hug. He asks my advice before he goes on stage because he knows I've already been with this person for a while. So he'll come up to me behind the stage and say, tell me what I'm dealing with. You know, he's already read a lot and gotten a lot of the history, but when he sits down with a guest, that's the first time they've spoken. So the audience gets a sense of this is not rehearsed. Right. But he still wants to know a little bit. So, no, he's really nice, and his wife always gives me a big hug. And and um, I think he's a, like a regular guy who realizes it, realizes he got lucky. Um, and they have never turned down anybody that I have asked them to take. Um, so it's it's been a special relationship, and one I never saw coming. I never saw a show before I met him. Uh, so it was very odd. What made you decide to write a book? Oh, a couple reasons. I wanted to, uh, people had bits and pieces of the story from seeing little parts of me on TV. And I really had the need to put it down. I, and I think it, for my kids, um, so that they know the totality of it. It also, having had two parents who died of alcoholism and addiction, it somehow, and I dedicated my book to them, it made their, their deaths not so in vain. So those were the reasons. And also, I didn't go into it thinking I was going to get great clarity or therapy, but that was the end result. When you write down your story, I mean, it was very good for me because I could see my life very clearly written out. And also, and this is not a popular answer, but everybody writes books because part of it is income. We're a two-income family. My son, who was having the behavior issues, ended up having autism. Um, and he's luckily high-functioning autism. He's one of those kids that you hear a lot about today on the news. Um, and he's in a regular school, but he's in special ed 50% of the time. And it takes a lot of resources to raise these kids. And we're two-income families. So partially I looked at it as a job, and I had a story to tell. And in the end, it's helped a lot of other people. That's a really honest answer. Thank you. Yeah, you know, no one ever says that. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the fact that you're a nurse, I'm also a nurse, I know that um, I think there's, I think nurses are held to a different standard when it comes to having an addictive disorder. And I think sometimes, um, not always, but um, it's almost like um, we turn on each other, that um, for some reason there's some people that believe that nurses shouldn't get a second chance. What has been your experience? Well, in the state where I live in, Maryland has been wonderful. They have a rehab committee. Um, I went on TV as an impaired nurse, and so when I got back from rehab, you better believe I was called to the office. Um, And they suspended my license for a year, and I worked very hard to get it back, and they really have been, they were really in my corner. Um, They were very supportive, and although they were very authoritative, they were also cheering me on. I'm not sure that's true. It's very different state by state. And I think it's unfortunate because if if you look at it in terms of any other disease, a patient will have diabetes, a nurse can get diabetes. Uh, you know, a patient has addiction or alcoholism, so can a nurse or a doctor. 
And you're right, that double standard is not fair. I just spoke out in California not too long ago, and I had um, a guy, I think he was like a CEO of a very prominent rehab, and he specifically asked me, how were you treated by your place of employment? Now, I'm not going to say where I was working when I was sick, but my place of employment never gave me the same latitude that we gave our patients. Um, And I found that kind of hurtful. You know, I'm just like everybody else. But our rehab committee for nurses in the the state of Maryland have been wonderful. Um, And they, they, I I speak a lot, and I speak a lot locally in Maryland, and there's someone from the rehab committee who's always in the audience. Um, So, yeah, it's been good. But I know I've heard from other nurses in other states they're not as forgiving. And I've also heard universally that physician board, rehab boards, are a lot more forgiving than nurses. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if it's even a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of being sick. Right. I mean, certainly the behavior is what is manifested from the disease, and that behavior can be diverting, which is a nice term for stealing drugs. They say diverting drugs when it's really stealing drugs. But it's really a matter of being sick and not bad. I think that um, you know the the more that that people, nurses in recovery, speak out, I hope that that will change. And we'll be right back um, after this commercial with Joni. And if you have any questions or comments, give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health, Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Joni Gamel, and she's an interventionist and registered nurse. And we've been talking to her about her experience in her own recovery and having gone on the Dr. Phil show where she received an intervention and then went on into treatment and, re- and recovery. And in her book, The Interventionist, um, one of the initial chapters is called Near Death by Adderall. And and I think that Adderall is probably one of the most overprescribed medications that I know of. And I was watching, um, I think it was 60 Minutes or Dateline, mm-hmm. and they were talking about how college kids are using Adderall. It's like they call it like um, the, the steroid for the brain so right. that if they need to, um, if they have tests coming up or they have four or five big papers do that um, they just go to the doctor and say, give them, mm-hmm. they look up signs of ADD on the Internet, they go to the doctor, tell them what they're experiencing, and they come out with a prescription for Adderall. So um, Adderall is like not one of my favorite medications, but um, can you just uh, share with us yeah, your and death you know, by Adderall? I mean, Adderall is overprescribed, but on the other hand, it really has its benefits and I can say that um, my son, and it wasn't his Adderall that I took, but my son with autism and ADHD, when he takes his Adderall, he falls asleep or calms down. So it has its legitimate uses in the population, just like all these drugs that are abused do. But, yeah, then people start using them for, like you said, steroids for the brain, or a lot of people are using Adderall for weight loss. Um, I I got it, and I you know I, I I had like a PhD in doctor shopping. I was very sleepy on the opiate that I was injecting, and like every good addict, I I didn't wasn't going to give up the opiate, but I needed to stay awake. And I knew Adderall had a reputation of getting you jacked up. And when I looked up in the PDR at the nurses station, it's listed as mixed amphetamine salts, and I just sort of loved the sound of that mixed amphetamine salts. So. Like a good con artist, which all drug addicts are, I went to the bookstore and got a book on ADHD, tucked the book under my arm, and went to a psychiatrist um, and said, I thought, hallelujah, I'm 40 years old. I finally figured out what's wrong with me. I have ADHD and I need some Adderall. Um, And he prescribed it. And it ended up in that first chapter, I never thought that I would love anything more than opiates, but as soon as I took Adderall, it was like fireworks went off in my brain. The euphoria that it produced in me was just indescribable, especially the first few times I used it. And I just started taking more and more and more of it and really lost control of it, more so than the opiate. Um, And I see that in my practice as an interventionist. In a later chapter in the book, I call Cocaine the Beast, Cocaine is an amphetamine like Adderall, and it is just a, it's like the rat hitting the bar. It just gives such an intense payoff and euphoria. Anyway, one morning I overshot the mark, and I went to pick my daughter up. She was in first grade at a Catholic school, and I was walking uphill. This was close to before I found Dr. Phil in the intervention, and I was walking uphill, and I started to have chest pain that went down my left arm. I was nauseated. I vomited on the sidewalk. 
and I was overdosing, having a coronary artery incident from having taken too much. And I talk about this at the podium a lot. Moms, my number one objective was not to abandon my daughter, my first grader, in her cute little uniform to the parking lot of that school. I wanted to make it up that hill instead of stopping and calling 911. Moms are the least represented group of people in rehab. When you look at the demographics or the geographics, or I'm not even saying it right, but the amount of people, the demographics that are in rehab, and that's because we feel like we have to take care of our children. So I was risking death to not leave my daughter in that parking lot. I did get her, and thank goodness walking down the hill, um, there was less cardiac load, and I got to a cardiologist, and they immediately put me in CCU and did a couple cardiac casts. And they came to me, and they said, Mrs. Gamble, we, your ischemia, and you know this, Mary, because you're a nurse, but ischemia is that the lack of oxygen to the heart is a mystery to us because nobody did a toxicology screen on me because I looked so normal. I'm middle class, college educated, married, two kids. Um, so they said it must be just coronary artery spasms from stress and gave me nitro tabs and sent me home. And I knew at that point both of my parents had died of alcoholism and addiction in their 40s and 50s, and I just felt like the genetic flame was chasing me. I really felt at that point that I was going to die. And within a few months was my inquiry to Dr. Phil and then the intervention in rehab. Mm. Um, That's a very powerful story because we don't see very many moms in treatment. Even there are some programs where moms can bring their kids, but um, women really are an underserved population. And I think that, um, you know, it's they're also it's easier for, I think, women to get medications from doctors than men. I think that sometimes, you know, um, women are often misprescribed or overprescribed just on the basis that they're a woman. I think they are, and we go in with a soft touch and the stresses of work and children. And I think the reason, like I said, that you don't see as many women and moms in treatment is because we feel like we need to take care of everybody else. Um, before we take care of ourselves. And there are, I did do an intervention with a woman. It was really wonderful. I did the intervention and packed her and her three-month-old up in my car and took the two of them to treatment. And she got to keep her three-month-old with her. And she had the resources there at the rehab, took care of the baby during the day so she could get to class and do everything that she needed to do. But she had access to that infant but you don't find that many programs. They're very expensive, um, and they just, they're not that available. When you, were, um, when you were putting your book together, one of the um, things that you were talking about were stress memories. Um, mm-hmm. How would you define a stress memory? Um, a stress memory is, you know, you... There were times where I was writing it where I would, and I wrote this book primarily in the local coffee shop with my little dog, Lucy, sitting next to me. And sometimes the stress memories would be so overwhelming emotionally that I would sort of have to look out the window so the other patrons wouldn't see me crying. Those were probably some of the best words that I wrote, though, because you can bring them up and it's almost like the moment is right back there with you. There were also, I think you could put into the category of stress memories, there were things that I blocked that came back up, and that was very difficult 
things I hadn't thought about in a long time because there's a chapter in there there is sexual molestation in my history. Um, so to go through those memories again and to honestly put those down and to look at that stressful time in my childhood brought a lot of things back that I had really put on the back burner. And I got into therapy before I wrote the book, but you better believe I got there a couple times a week while I was writing it to make sure I was working through it because you don't want to end up relapsing or getting sick because you've written a book that's too stressful. Exactly, exactly. Um, when, How would you define an intervention? It, an intervention is a structured meeting where you motivate someone who's treatment resistant to go to rehab. And an interventionist, in really in the strictest sense, is the moderator, the facilitator that helps a family express their wishes, their concerns, their expectations in a formal way. And you do that by writing letters ahead of time, and the family get those, gets those letters back to me so I have a chance to look at them. And then we surround the person with love. So it's a meeting, but in my interventions, the primary feeling is one of love and respect, and I also get the patient to identify with me. It is very much their meeting. I never mentioned Dr. Phil and all that. It's too big. This is their meeting. This is their time. But I do share that I'm an alcoholic and an addict and that my life was turned around by an intervention so that they don't think I'm just a professional sitting there with a clipboard that hasn't been through what they're going through right now. So it's really a meeting where you help the family express how they feel. And, I mean, families can do that on their own, but many times when you do that on your own, it falls apart with fighting. Oh, remember that Christmas when you did this? And they start to deflect, and before you know it, it's a family rumble. And so what an interventionist does is keeps it on track. Um, and the main goal or focus is to get that person to go to treatment. You're not going to solve all the family problems for the last 30 years. Um, your main goal is to get them there so you keep everybody on track, and I think that's one of the biggest things that the interventionist brings to the table. That, and I bring lots of love. I, I, I instantly like the people that I work with, and I think I resonate that. By the time I get them to treatment, they were giving each other big hugs, and I usually hear from them when they get out. I give them a card. Um, so, and I think every interventionist has a different style. Some are more authoritative. Um, some do executive interventions solely, that sort of thing, so that there's more of a professional air. I have a, a much more softer style. What do you think is one of the key things to help motivate people to make such a big decision besides love? Well, if you not if you don't get them to go with love, like you start with the day you were born, the day you went to kindergarten, and you get to the emotional core. If that doesn't work, then you go to examples of how things are out of control, and you want to do that in a non-judgmental way because if you point fingers or get too angry, they start to fight back. Beyond that, and it's always written separately, a thing that will motivate people are the consequences or the boundaries. And many times with younger people, you'll get to this. Um, at this time of the year, I'm doing intervention after intervention on kids who have gone to college and have flunked out because they haven't left the dorm room because they've been sucking on a bong pipe for the whole semester. And the consequences that the families are putting down are, we are not going to pay for your college. 
um, the, until you go to treatment this summer. So that would be a boundary or consequence. Now, you don't always get to that. If the, if the young person says that they will go after love and memories and examples, you don't go over the consequences. But the entirety of the letter goes with them to rehab, and the therapist goes over it with them again so that they know that when they come home they're expected to stay well or mom and dad aren't paying for college. So it's love, examples, and then the boundaries. Did I answer your question, Mary? Yeah, you make it sound really simple. Well, you know, it 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 it's it takes a lot of finesse, and I have a lot of people say to me they want to be an interventionist. And I, I think I mentioned this to you before we went on the air. There's no federal or state standard yet for interventionists, so you have to be really careful. Go to really well-known rehabs and ask for referrals. It's simple, but you have to use a lot of finesse because you really don't know what you're getting until you get in the room with the person. Um, But you follow a formula, and that formula, for me, 90% of the time works. And I think you raise a good point in terms of if families are looking for someone to, to do an intervention, you really need to do your homework and you need to research um, people and, yeah. and have conversations with them ahead of time because there are many different styles of interventions. You do, and you call up the rehab, and usually a good rehab will give you two or three names of interventionists that they use that are doing a good job for them. Um, and I have some that I have passed over because I absolutely know that they need a male interventionist. And then I will call on a colleague and, and ask them to take it over for me. And I think that um, certainly with the advent of television shows on um, addiction and addictive disorders, there's kind of a glamorization of the intervention as being the, you know... <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah. I kind of I use that in my favor because the kids kind of think it's hip to have an intervention. Yeah. And so I will use that and put that in my bag of tricks. I'll say, hey, buddy, you know, it's pretty cool to have an intervention. Um, it Also, though, TV frightens people about doing it because they put the most intense ones on TV with all the drama, and they're not always that intense with that much drama. Um, but TV does kind of glamorize it, and there's this voyeuristic people like to watch people having a hard time. But I look at it as hopefully people, what people are getting out of it is to see how complex and difficult this disease is to deal with. Well, that would be nice. I tend to believe that people who are that ill, um, the last thing they should be doing is putting that on television. You know, it's they're not in a place to really make an informed decision. They aren't. And, you know, I was that sick, though, Mary, when I went on TV. And people say to me, why did you do that? And part of it was, I, I go back to, yeah, I was impaired. Was I really making an informed choice about doing it? But we were, and this is a whole nother, a whole nother show, health care does not pay, insurance does not pay, put out enough money and services for people with addiction. And we had used our insurance, and our insurance was getting us short stays, and I was in and out and in and out, 10 days, detox here, 12 days, and coming home to kids in diapers, and it just wasn't enough to get well. And so what TV afforded me, even though I was very ill, was I got to stay in treatment for four months. 
and average Americans can't afford that kind of treatment. I mean, a good rehab sometimes, the one that I was in was about 30000 a month. That's about $120,000 worth of treatment that we just didn't have sitting in a checking account. I wouldn't have gotten well if I hadn't gotten that resource, and the way to get that resource is to go on TV. And hopefully you – and uh, the show aired while I was in rehab, and nurse after nurse and a few other non-nurses came to treatment and said, I'm here because I saw you on TV. So you make a good point. There are some positive things about um, reality television. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Joni Gamble, who is a registered nurse and board-registered interventionist. She's written a book about her experiences, aptly titled The Interventionist. Um, Joni, how many interventions have you done, do you think? I think, you know, I, my husband, who's kind of my, he's, he's my bookkeeper, I think we're headed towards 200, or like at the 183 mark, something like that. 
Um, which, you know, an intervention, when you do it as a profession, if you're doing one a week, that's a lot um, because it takes a lot to organize it, facilitate it. So I do about one a week or two every 10 days when it's really busy. Uh, so I, I would say well over, I think we're headed towards 200. Um, is there a way to um, share with our audience um, some of the the people that you've done interventions with and what their experience has been without, you know, maintaining their, with maintaining their confidentiality? Yeah, um, I especially, well, some of the people um, in my book have signed so that they, they're, they don't mind if their real name is used. There's one that really stands out in my mind, and I love this kid. Um, he, he lives close to my community. It was my first all-male intervention and all these guys worked for an air conditioning and heating company, and nobody put their letters on the computer. They all had them handwritten and scrunched up in little balls in their back pockets with their work boots on. And the kid also had, um, Nick, also has cystic fibrosis. And his intervention, all these guys sitting around with their hard hats on the table, all of them cried and expressed how much this kid meant to them, especially since he had addiction and another chronic illness. And his dad and his brother were there, and he was just such a wonderful kid. We got, like, halfway to the treatment facility, and he didn't have tennis shoes. He had work boots, so we had to stop and buy him tennis shoes. And it was a, my first experience, which, oh, my God, buying tennis shoes with a 19-year-old. Tennis shoes seemed to be really important to that age group. And um, it was just lovely because it was all men who swore they weren't an emotional group, and then they're all sitting there expressing their love for this kid. And he's done well. He's had um, a relapse and gone back to treatment. And that brings up another point. I hate that word relapse. I prefer relapse in in the recovery medical community. It just seems to connotate failure. Um, I prefer to look at relapse as a flare-up, of a chronic health condition. There's no other disease that you are diagnosed with and you get treatment for that you're expected to never have problems with it again until you die. And if you do, it's a relapse and you have failed. Let's say it's multiple sclerosis or diabetes, but when it's addiction and alcoholism, it's a relapse is terrible. So I don't even like that word anymore. I call it a flare-up of a chronic condition. And when you take the shame out of it, People get well faster. You know, we don't want them to feel bad about this. We just want to look at it as a little blimp in the road, a little flare-up, and let's get well again. And uh, this kid had a flare-up, and he's doing well now, and he's just a sweet kid. And um, with cystic fibrosis, I asked him on the way to treatment. I said, how do you feel about getting well? And he was so optimistic about his cystic fibrosis because there's been so many advances in that, in that area and that disease that he didn't, because I thought if I had cystic fibrosis, I would just be like, well, I'm just going to use because I'm going to have problems and maybe die young anyway. And he didn't feel that way. Um, And just a wonderful dad. And his dad and I bonded. Um, I went over to his house, and I have a son with autism, and that, you know, causes my heart pain almost every day. Um, It's hard to express, um, especially with high-functioning autism, these kids want to be accepted and they're not. They're socially awkward. And the heartbreaks and the things that my son and the struggles that he is going to have in life 
really break my heart. And um, uh, Nick's dad, of course, has his son with addiction and cystic fibrosis, and Izzy and I really bonded over having these both of our sons have uh, chronic issues in their lives. And it would just it turned into a very special relationship between that family and ours. That's very, um, it, it's really inspiring. And, and I think your point is very well taken, is that this is a chronic illness, and um, the expectation is that you're going to treat it once and then you're going to be good for the rest of your life. And, and, and people talk about behavior, and I think that, you know, it's so ironic because as a nurse I've seen people have um you know, coronary artery disease. I've had, I've seen people have have um, strokes, and they continue to smoke afterward. They don't. They continue mm-hmm. to eat really poorly. They drop out of cardio cardiac rehab, and yet the next time they have a vascular emergency, it's treated as a vascular emergency, and people aren't saying, "Well, you didn't do your cardio. You, you right. you're, and you're not smoking. coming to Christmas dinner because you blew it." Right. Right. <laughs> Right, right, and and you're absolutely right, and I, and I think sometimes as treatment providers, um, we're as bad at that double standard as anyone else is. Well, you know? I think we're bad at it, and I think we're overloaded too. I mean, when you go to the emergency rooms, and again, this is because insurance is not paying enough for the treatment that people need. So addicts and alcoholics are seen in vast numbers in emergency rooms, and the healthcare workers are just overwhelmed with them. And they see this repetitive cycle. They seem to see the same patient over and over. And so they start getting an attitude towards them. And that's where I think that double standard part of it was that's where it starts. I think you're right. And we know that, um, you know, treatment for uh, addictive disorders, there's research that shows that um, a minimum of three months provides positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Six months provides even better outcomes of ongoing treatment. That doesn't necessarily mean to be in residential treatment, be residential and or outpatient. And going to self-help also adds to people's um, resilience and ability to um, recover. And that compliance with addiction treatment is equal or even more than it is for diabetes, hypertension, or asthma. But nobody talks about it. No, because nobody, nobody wants to pay for it. I know I sound like but, a broken record now. But we're um, paying for it anyway, you know. Um, we're paying. It's a very expensive disease to treat the way we're treating it. If if people invested in treatment, it would be much more cost-effective and we'd have great outcomes. Oh, I agree, because you are. You're paying for it in crime. You're paying for it in incarceration. Emergency and, room visits. Yeah, emergency room visits. And people often say to me, what was the turning point? Well, when I went to the Dr. Phil show, I stayed in treatment for three months, and that was really the difference. And it allowed me to get well and to get on my feet and be able to come home and cope with two children and family life and early recovery all at the same time. Um, we'll be right back after our next commercial with Joni. If anybody has any questions or comments, uh, give us a call. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Joni Gamel, and we're talking about interventions. Uh, Joni is an interventionist who is a registered nurse and a board-registered interventionist. Um, and you were sharing with us before we went to break about a young man that who now is doing well, mm-hmm. and we were talking about um, the double standard around um, somebody who has an addictive disorder who gets treatment, um, becomes symptom-free, and then when they have a flare-up of symptoms, um, it's, it's, it's looked at as a failure. When in any other chronic illness, there's an expectation there'll be a flare-up of, of symptoms. So um, I really appreciate your point of view because that's the way I think, too. And I've known a number of interventionists over the years, having mm-hmm. worked in the um, profession of, of addiction for a long time, and um, I rarely have met one who's a nurse, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering, from your experience as a nurse, what is it like um, being an interventionist? Oh, I, I think there's a lot of benefits to being an RN in the field because you get into positions with people that are using a variety of drugs and to have a knowledge of the body. And as an example, this past week, oh, just about five days ago, I had an intervention it was a big intervention with about 30 people. And this woman, um, the husband had reported to me, and this is really important, you have to get a good history on the phone from the family before you go in. 
But he had reported to me that her liver was pretty shot. She was going to have to be put on a transplant list. But her her records had already been transferred to the rehab, and she had been cleared to come there based on her hospital stay. And the morning that I show up, or we had talked a few times that week, and I encouraged him to keep taking her to the doctor to make sure she was stable. And I got there that morning, and we got her down the stairs, and I could tell something just wasn't right. And the 30 people were so intent on reading their letters, and I tell sort of in a joking way, if the interventionist ever says, you guys keep reading, I'll be right back, and you run to the front porch with your cell phone, there's something wrong. And I called 911, and they came, and as the ambulance came, I said to the family, I said, you're reading your letters, but she's not here. Her level of consciousness is not here. She was um, continue, She was picking up something like she was drinking that wasn't there. And you might know this, Mary, as a nurse, this intuitive sense that something is very wrong, even without knowing exactly what it is. And I think that comes from years of working in the field. And I think another interventionist, and this is to toot my own horn a little bit, might have thought that she had gotten hold of a couple bottles of wine, and that was not the case. Her, uh, they got her to the hospital. Her ammonia levels had risen, and that uh, that created some of her mental unawareness. But beyond that, they did a CAT scan, and they found a bleed. She must have fallen down the night before, and they had to take her cranium off and suction off the blood, and they said she was very close to um, some brain death if she hadn't gotten in there. And that is just an example of having a healthcare worker in the field um, versus an interventionist, that many interventionists do great, great jobs, and these situations don't happen very often. But I think it was my medical and nursing knowledge that allowed me to immediately say, we need to get this lady to the hospital and not continue this intervention. Um, so every day, even today, I got a text, and she's had only had about 10 minutes of consciousness um, since that intervention. It's five days ago. So she's still in ICU and a very critical patient. Wow. Um, so that's an example of, of nursing knowledge in the field. Um, do, you, do you find that there's, a, there's um, I guess for lack of a better word, a double standard around being a nurse versus being um, a counselor or a social worker? I don't think so. You know, we're such a motley crew right now. I mean, there's a lot of interventionists out there that haven't been to college there's a lot of people in recovery that have just started doing them, and they do an excellent job. It is such a um, – right now it's sort of like the Wild West out there. and Most people accept me, and I accept them. And I, you reach a certain level, you know who's doing a good job. Um, I've had a lot of people come to me that want me to mentor them, and I have to look at that very closely um, because this isn't an easy job. It's not for the faint of heart. And, no, you know, I haven't – I haven't felt really a double standard with interventionists and RN. Um, people seem to be, the rehabs have responded very well to me. I think they're comfortable using me as an interventionist because they know they also have an RN on the job. Mm-hmm. So if anything, I've gotten more work, and maybe there's people that are resentful of that in the field, but if they are, I haven't heard about it. How can people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, I have, it's really easy. My website is www.interventionrn.com. So I tell people, just remember, I'm an RN, interventionrn.com. And I'm also, my book, I'm on Facebook, Joni Gamble on Facebook, and there's an author page um, where you can see more about the book, and probably this interview will be downloaded on that page. 
And where can people buy the book? Oh, you can buy it anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kindle. Uh, it's pretty much in, in, it's been distributed very, in, very widely now. Um, if there's one thing that you would like people to really um, take away from this interview, what would it be? That people do get well from addiction and alcoholism and that it's a process, not an event. Uh, that it's a process, it's a lifelong process, and take the shame out of it. Remember it's a flare-up and that people get well and start early. Now I've given them way too many things to keep track of, but um, start early. When your kids are having problems, don't look the other way. The earlier you start with the getting them well, the better the long-term prognosis is. And I think the other thing that it's really important, too, is... Um, Coming from an Irish Catholic family, I have a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. to alcoholism and sure. depression, and I think that it's important for us to understand that the genetic part of it too. Is oh, that yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get it, but it certainly is something that we have to be um, be aware of for ourselves and for our children. Oh yeah, and the genetics are huge, um, and and also if you look at natural selection, how diseases work, there's themselves through a population, Native Americans have the highest rate of alcoholism right now, and that's because they were the last population to be introduced to alcohol, Um, and that's how all diseases, and that gives you more credibility or another factor for you to believe alcoholism is a disease, but genetics play an important role. It's definitely, um, I tell people it's not causal, but it's exacerbated. Um, it's bio, it's psycho, and it's social. And then I get into a whole nursing lecture. But it starts with the genetics. It most certainly does. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. And I think that you have a very powerful message, both for um, for families and for uh, for women and for, for nurses. I think that it's we need more nurses to come out and... Um, carry the message of recovery and that this is a disease that that nurses can succumb to as well. Yep. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Mary. Um, It was a pleasure. Have a good week, everybody. And, uh, well, next week is Memorial Day. Have a great long weekend, and we'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.